Today I'm here with Dr. E. Michael Jones. Um, Dr. E. Michael Jones is the author of Libido Dominandi, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, and uh, many other books. So today we're going to be discussing um, many things, but it's going to be kind of centered around two of his uh, most popular books. So my first question for you, Dr. Jones, is uh, I've heard you mention that when you wrote your book, Libido Dominanti. At the time, people did not believe the uh, the things you said, and, and now today, your predictions have demonstrated themselves to be true. At that time of writing, what was it like having everyone think you were wrong? Well, uh, obviously, every author wants to be acclaimed uh, as a prophet the minute his book comes out, but that's just not the way it works, especially if you contest one of the main paradigms of the culture that you live in. And the main paradigm that I contested was that pornography is equals freedom. Pornography is a manifestation of freedom. That uh, I I wrote this in the in the mid '90s, so it was about uh, 25 years ago, something like that. Uh, and uh, at that time, uh, the, the battle was over the internet. Uh, basically, uh, was the internet going to provide? Uh, information or was it going to be a vehicle for pornography? Well, Bill Clinton was in the White House at that point, and it was a foregone conclusion that given his personal uh, personal life and given his adherence to the oligarchs that he established for his entire life from the time he was a Rhodes Scholar, that he was going to uh, break the uh, um, Internet open, make it safe for pornography. And that's exactly what he did. But there were two propaganda movies that came out at that time. Uh, the People versus Larry Flint and Boogie Nights, both in favor of pornography. And Larry Flint said exactly what I just said in that movie. No one will be free unless I'm free to cr uh, create pornography. <clears throat> it was <clears throat> this was a, a, a moment, a moment uh, when that uh, it seemed like uh, a triumph for for progressive thinking. And uh, no one was contesting it. I was the only one who was contesting it. Uh, there were people who were against pornography. Obviously, there had been a whole history of anti-pornography efforts, but no one had contested it on that ground, that uh, uh, it wasn't really freedom. As a matter of fact, it was the exact opposite of freedom. It was slavery. Uh, and so to do that, I had to go back to other paradigms, including uh, the uh, picture of uh, Samson and Delilah that's on the book's cover, uh, which, uh, you know, Sam, the story of Samson and Delilah, Samson succumbs to Delilah's sexual wiles and uh, she uh, cuts off after she cuts off his hair. OK, and then uh, to show what it really means, she gouges his eyes out. Lust makes you blind. That's what I was saying. Lust turns you into a slave. John Milton said that. Uh, Samson was, uh, where is your hero now? He's grind, eyeless in Gaza, grinding at the mill with slaves. So this was part of the cultural patrimony of the West. St. Thomas Aquinas said, lust makes you blind. Uh, and it had been completely forgotten. No one was talking about it. And I resurrected it. And it took uh, about, uh, I'd say, 25 years to digest that book. Because uh, the real moment came in the fall of, uh, 2019 with uh, something that was called NoFap uh, November, which is basically a bunch of young guys who woke up one morning and realized they were slaves to their passions. And the pornography was a vicious addiction that was very difficult to break. And they decided to make the attempt. 
And at this point, the idea, I didn't have to tell them they were slaves. I didn't have to tell them that pornography led to bondage because they knew that already. All I had to do was explain how it was really used as a form of political control. And that's what the book did. And suddenly the idea took off and suddenly the tide changed. And there were people who are now swimming upstream now. I say that because it's a difficult habit to break. It's not something that happened overnight. Uh, but simply telling people that it was a form of control suddenly allowed them to understand the situation. And with the understanding of the situation came a, a resolution to do something about it. And that's that's what happened. Yeah. So that brings me right into my uh, next question here that we see slavery um, has taken uh, more advanced forms of manis- manifestation, such as usury, pornography. Um, do you think that as technological development increases, so will new methods of slavery or new manifestations rather? Yeah, because the oligarchs invariably own the new technology. That's that's what happens. There's nothing intrinsic to the technology that makes it this way. Technology is neutral. It's simply a tool. So it's like, uh, is a hammer evil? No. Well, uh, you can use a hammer to bludgeon an old lady to death, uh, but the evil doesn't reside in the hammer. It resides in the the person whose hand is holding the hammer. Same thing is true of the Internet. So it could have been simply a great tool for allowing conversations all over the world, for uniting people uh, in discussions, and instead it got turned into, first of all, a vehicle for pornography, which is the opposite of discussion, it's the opposite of uh, rationality, uh, and it caused a, a, a catastrophic collapse, demographic collapse among 20-year-olds, or among that generation, 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds, because they had become isolated, which is the natural consequence of masturbation to pornography. Uh, they couldn't form relationships with the opposite sex. Uh, because they couldn't do that, they couldn't start families. Because they couldn't start families, they remained in a state of perpetual adolescence in their parents' ba- basement. Uh, that's the catastrophe that I saw. Uh, you add to that student loan debt, and you have a really bad situation that is going to show up sooner or later uh, in birth statistics and demographic uh, power. So basically, uh, the oligarchs, by by using pornography this way, by using the Internet as a vehicle for the distribution of pornography, crippled an entire generation. And uh, they, they still, as far as I can tell, they still have not recovered. They still, because these are skills that you have to develop skills in dealing with members of the opposite sex. And I'm talking about both male and female here. You have to, there, there are skills that uh, in previous generations, you just picked up by being part of the culture. So when I was uh, a teenager, everybody went to dances in Philadelphia and there was actually a famous TV show called bandstand which is basically a kind of uh, valorization of that dance culture in philadelphia and that was allowed you to uh, uh, interact with the opposite sex in a non-threatening way that could lead on to something more serious uh, like a relationship and ultimately marriage all of these things were obliterated by this toxic culture and the final nail in the coffin was was uh, pornography 
this had a catastrophic effect for the Internet, too, because it redefined censorship. So censorship before was uh, basically the prevention of obscenity. And then once obscenity got accepted, deviance remained constant. And so now censorship is all focused on opinions that the oligarchs don't like including medical opinions that the oligarchs don't like, which is one of the main forms of censorship on the Internet. So it had a catastrophic effect across the board, and the mess we're in right now is directly traceable to that. Yeah, and uh, I agree. I think a lot of especially young men are waking up to the issues of pornography. But unfortunately, some people don't see that it is a form of slavery and bondage. And in fact, some people actually see it as a form of freedom, such as – the person you debated last night seemed to think that it was a form of liberation or something absurd yes. like that. Yes. That, uh, Avosh is a classic example of uh, lust darkening the mind. Yeah. It was, it was impossible to talk to this guy. It was impossible. Logos simply got short-circuited uh, the minute he opened his mouth. Uh, his everything he said was basically an attempt to justify his own addiction to pornography. And the more we got into it, the more uh, outrageous his speech became, became more angry. He told me to shut the fuck up at one point, which I thought was an interesting way of encouraging dialogue. Uh, and then he started spewing out all of his uh, perverted habits. Uh, you know, we, the guilty flea were none pursueth here. Uh, I kept trying to tell him this wasn't about him, but he insisted that it was about him, and he wanted to make his bad habits normative for an entire generation. He's 27 years old. He wanted to make uh, make the, his bad habits normative for his fellow 20-year-olds. Uh, misery loves company. Uh, lust darkens the mind. That was the message I got out of our discussion last night. Yeah, what's interesting with this guy is that he um – He's very pro, like, oh, we should have the government taking care of its population, which is – there's nothing wrong with that. But then he seems to not apply that to something like pornography because he just doesn't see it as an issue. But uh, that actually brings me into my next question here is – now, obviously, the solution to escaping spiritual warfare would be to reintroduce Logos into our lives. And in what way could we do this? The first, The first act is always – a negative act. You have to break your addictions and and uh, whatever they are. Uh, so in this instance, you have to break the addiction to pornography. Now, I, I said last night, uh, I, we, we should not be in uh, a country that enables people to exploit other people's passions for, for financial gain. But that is, unfortunately, the world we live in. We, we have uh, uh, basically uh, these people controlling our culture constantly. It's as if we're, we're all, we are all cripples. When it comes to our uh, controlling our passions, we're cripples. And you've got here we got uh, people uh, stringing uh, piano wire across the sidewalk uh, where the cripples have to walk. And, and then when they, when they trip and fall, it's your own damn fault. It's your fault because of freedom and because of this weird mixture of libertarianism and sexual socialism that, that Vosh is promoting and apparently uh, people are, are listening to. No one should have the right to trip up someone else. No one should have the right to exploit other people's passions. It's just wrong. It's flat out wrong. 
And and so when you explain to him that the, the entire generation has simply checked out and they're not forming families and they're off, uh, he, he can't see there's any harm to that. This this is it, 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 it's it's a combination of simply this dogmatic assertion that whatever I do is right because I do it, and secondly a simply dogmatic kind of blindness to reality. So when someone calls up, someone called up, texted, didn't call up, but texted a, a message where he understood exactly what I was saying because he had been addicted to pornography and he had a struggle, he struggled and he overcame the addiction. He just sneers at it and dismisses it. Well, and then he accuses me of dismissing anything that disagrees with my thesis. No, he did that. He did that. He projected his own behavior onto me. And it was, uh, I suppose it was instructive in some sense, uh, but it simply proved that Aquinas was right. Lust darkens your mind. You can't see reality. Yeah, he just seems to be, um, he has issues with certain types of exploitation, but when it's an exploitation that, you know, he enjoys, then it's it's not exploitation, according to him. It's complete hypocrisy. Now, uh, moving on here to uh, philosophy, I've heard you speak about Hegel, and uh, I believe I heard you mention that uh, his usage of the, and correct me if I'm wrong here, the dialectic uh, was his way of trying to recreate or secularize the Holy Trinity. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, Hegel was a, uh, uh, a Lutheran uh and be, uh, born in into a Lutheran family in 1770. Okay, raised as a Lutheran, and then uh, he goes and uh, goes to a Lutheran seminary. He had some of the most famous people in in uh, German history, history of philosophy. There, Schelling was there. He was younger than five years younger than Hegel. Great group of people, and all of these people, uh, when they turn 19, the French Revolution breaks out. And they're young men, and they're all, uh, as young men are, they're all uh, filled with revolutionary fervor. Uh, but it, 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 Hegel didn't want to abandon Lutheran theology either. And so he, his mission in life became a, 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 try, a trying to bring about some type of unity between the French Revolution and the values that they espoused and also uh, the Trinity, the theology, the central, the central belief of uh, Christianity in some sense, is the, the Trinity. It's the understanding of God as uh, three persons in one God. And at this point, uh, he comes in contact with uh, Fichte, uh, also a German, also uh, a Lutheran theologian, uh, a couple years older than Hegel, who had already uh, was a d disciple of Immanuel Kant and tried to move Kant forward. Uh, Kant had rescued the philosophical tradition from uh, the skepticism of David Hume, the mind now could have some type of impact on reality. The question is, to what extent does the mind have impact on reality? Is there a reality? Or is it all just mind? And so we had at this point, they, they, they were so exuberant and so enthusiastic and so hopeful that they basically uh, abolished uh, reality. Uh, and this is known as idealism. And Fichte is famous for uh, idealism. You can read his book, uh, a popularized book that he wrote called uh, Die Bestimmung des Menschens, or The uh, Vocation of Man. And the vocation of man is structured along the dialectic. And the dialectic is real, okay? Uh, 
it, it is part of the Trinity. The Trinity is a manifestation of the dialectic or vice versa, I suppose we would say. But it, it, it's also it has a relevance to art. I just finished a book on aesthetics. It has relevance to work. Uh, it has relevance to human development. So you start off in life and things are real, uh, but they're not conscious. That's what it means to be a child. And then you become an adolescent and then things become conscious, but they're not real. In other words, you don't simply accept them the way you did as a child. Everything is up for grabs. And a lot of people just end up staying there forever in this kind of adolescent rebellion. But the mature, uh, the final step is to make something that is both real and meaningful. And mm -hmm. that is what human work does. It's also what art does. So if you start off, let's say a work of art, a block of marble, that's real, but it doesn't have any meaning. And then you have an idea, let's say Moses or David, and you look at the block and suddenly if you're Michelangelo, the form emerges from the block, or maybe it's just Michelangelo imposing that mind, that idea on the block. But either way, you end up with the third stage of the dialectic in which you have something that is both real, it's marble, and it's meaningful. It's Moses. And not only is this Moses, it's a portrayal of Moses' character. The strength of his character comes out in that block of marble. It's amazing. If, if you haven't seen it, it's, you have to go to San Pietro in Vincoli in Rome, and you have to put, used to put 500 lira coin to turn the light on to see the statue. It's all in the room by, all by itself. But when you see it, it's, what a, it's a stunning, absolutely stunning aesthetic experience, similar to what you see with David, similar to the experience I had as a 12-year-old when I saw the uh, Michelangelo's Pietà at the New York World's Fair. So now this is exactly what uh, the dialectic – Hegel has picked up the dialectic from Fichte, uh, but the problem is no one knows what the third stage is now. So Fichte has – he's more sophisticated than you would think because he talks about action as the third stage. And there's something real about that. Action is something like work. In other words, the whole point of human life is to apply consciousness to matter in some sense. So oh, – I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Ask uh, – uh, would... Go ahead. Uh, would you say that the um, Trinity in itself is dialectical or the relationship between the Trinity and the created order is dialectical? The relationship in uh, in the Trinity uh, – and there can be no development inside the Trinity, mm -hmm. okay, because it's eternal and it's, these people are all from eternity. The relationship between the Trinity and nature is uh, dialectical in the way that I just tried to ex explain it to you. Okay. So the question is, what is the relationship uh, between those first two stages and the third stage? Is everything uh, a manifestation of mind? Is the entire universe a manifestation of mind? The answer to that question is yes, but it only applies to the mind of God. So uh, we know this because Every utterance of God is performative speech. In other words, if God says it, it happens. 
so God said, let there be light, and there was light. The whole story of Genesis is a story of performative speech because God is the ultimate manifestation of mind. We call that mind uh, logos, and he is an active participant in the historical development of the universe from beginning to end. To the, Right now, he's an active participant holding everything in being. So the question is, uh, what is the relationship then to the, of the human mind to the divine mind? And uh, couldn't figure it out. That's where the whole project kind of stalled. And the crucial moment here came when uh, Hegel is in Jena. Uh, he's writing, it's about 18.5. He's writing, trying to finish up the uh, phenomenology of the spirit, which is his attempt to uh, deal with this. Uh he says he wrote the prolegomena, the beginning of it, with cannon, the Napoleon's cannons in the background. He saw Napoleon uh, sweep into uh, Jena on horseback, uh, called him the Weltgeist on horseback, incredibly influenced by, uh, by Napoleon, as Beethoven was in his way. Beethoven is exactly the same age as Hegel. Uh, so the question is, uh, how do we move forward here? How do we talk about this, the, the dialectic? What is the second stage of the dialectic? Now, in the middle of this deliberation, uh, Hegel embarks upon an affair with his chambermaid. Okay, now, if you talk to a Catholic theologian, he will say that when you're, t when you're dealing with something like the Trinity, which is way above what human understanding can fathom, it's good to gauge in uh, contemplation, which means a kind of aesthetic approach to this. Well, he took the exact opposite of this aesthetic approach um, by getting involved in sinful behavior. And as I mentioned uh, uh, in reference to our friend Vosh, uh, lust darkens the mind. And so at the very moment he's trying to figure out the relationship, he's involved with a sexual relationship with his chambermaid. Uh, there's a crisis in his life. And what does he do? Well, he falls back on Lutheran theology. What else is he going to fall back on? That's what he was trained in. And if you go back to Luther, well, what, what did Luther do when he was faced with a similar crisis? Luther uh, was a, a man who had a real difficult time controlling his passions. Uh, uh, he was broke with the church. Uh, they were engaged in what you would call uh, uh, human trafficking. Uh, he and his uh, Lutheran buddies would uh, break into convents and drag the nuns off, and then he would offer the best-looking nun to, let's say, the Archbishop of Mainz. He wrote him a letter. You can have the best-looking nun of the bunch if you come over to the to the uh, evangelical party. Uh, so he was acting as uh, a pimp. I, I, I think that's exactly what you'd have to say that was. Uh, and uh, so he found this intolerable. People always find guilt intolerable. It's just part of the nature of guilt. So what do you do when you broke with the church? Uh, you broke with sacramental confession. You're a priest. You're constantly tempted to break your vows. What do you do? Well, you, you make wrong right. And so he said, God did it. In other words, God is responsible for evil. There is no free will. He wrote the tract De Servo Arbitrio uh, shortly after he ran off and married uh, the nun uh, Katerina von Bora. 
he immediately understood uh, that this was uh, the consequences of this action because he her nickname was Keta, but he used to refer to her as Keta, which is a German term for chain. So he understood that he was now in bondage of sin, and but couldn't tolerate that. So he said basically there was no free will. Hegel's in a similar situation, except what is the second part of the dialectic? What do you mean? What do you mean by that second part? Let's say, the, what is the relationship between God the Father to God the Son? Is it negation? No, I don't think so. But let's go take a step back and let's talk about uh, Hegel's uh, biography. What is the relationship between Hegel as father and the illegitimate son that he just fathered? Well, that's adversarial. That son is a threat. That son is negativity. And at this point, Hegel projected his own guilt onto God in the same way that Luther did. And he introduced the second stage of the dialectic as negativity. Okay, at this point, he broke with the Trinity. You cannot have negativity in the Trinity. The son is not the adversary of the father. The son is in many ways the fulfillment of the father's love. That's exact. That would be, uh, but that doesn't fit in. And so he wrecked his own dialectic because as soon as you put negativity into the dialectic, it becomes a machine. Uh, it doesn't need any more explanation. And this is precisely what Feuerbach uh, deduced from Hegel. Feuerbach was a student of Hegel. He wrote him a letter saying, "Well, if it's negativity, then you don't need uh, any other explanation. It's a machine, and you just destroyed God." That that was the the net result of Hegel's uh, projecting his own sexual sins onto the Trinity. Yeah, like metaphysically speaking, if you uh, imply negativity within the Trinity, then it kind of becomes impossible to have it be eternal. Because if something's being negated, this kind of, in my opinion, would uh, imply process. Which right, absolutely, that's exactly what happened. And so Hegel at this point was having long discussions with Goethe. Hegel was a, a, an academic schemer. He's just like uh, Isaac Newton, was real interested in academic preferment, really wanted the endowed chair in Berlin. And he knew that Goethe could help him get it. So he's having long discussions with uh, Goethe. Goethe's writing Faust at this point. And I think, uh, basically, that Mephistopheles is Hegel. I think mm -hmm. that uh, because what does Mephistopheles say? Uh, how does he identify himself? He says, ich bin der Geist, der stets verneint. I am the, the spirit of eternal negativity. Well, that's exactly what Hegel did to the second person of the Trinity. And I think Goethe saw Hegel as the embodiment of this type of negative, this type of demonic, demonic negativity. Satan would be a negation of God, but certainly not the son. And there's nothing internal to the Trinity that could ever approximate this. Right. And would you also say that um, Hegel's understanding of, I guess, we could, yeah, world history is kind of flawed because it's missing God, obviously, uh, a teleology behind it or, or a teleology in the proper sense? Well, that, that's so the, in context. OK, Hegel and the Germans are the antithesis of the English. And in this regard, we're talking about. Uh, Newton rather than uh, Hume 
And Newton's cosmology is basically paganism. It's two forces. It's love and strife, which you call gravity and inertia. And they put these two things together and they create a machine that operates all by itself. So it expelled the one thing you expel from the Newton expelled from the universe is teleology, the sense that any motion has a goal. All motion is now violent motion. There's no goal to anything. Well, if that's the case, history does not have a goal. And if that's the case, then what are we doing here? Well, we don't have really any purpose because it's all just atoms in the void and everything just goes round and round and round. And if it just goes round and round and round, there's no history because history is not just going round and round. There's a forward motion to history. History is a drama that has a beginning, a middle and an end. And that's what Hegel reintroduced to the understanding of history. So in spite of everything, uh, you know, I think he, he he did rehabilitate the understanding of history. Now, again, he didn't get it on his own. He got it from all of the uh, the Germans that were part of this great intellectual outburst at the late 19th, early 19th century. And a lot of these people, Hamann, Lamage, Dunor, uh, all went. They all went to Naples, and they it was there that they made contact with Vico, and uh, the great Italian Gian Battista Vico, the great Italian philosopher, who basically was the first man to resurrect time since the time of Augustine. He completely destroyed the Cartesian. Didn't destroy it, but he completely marginalized the Cartesian universe, which is basically the Newtonian universe, uh, and reintroduced history as a series of unrepeatable events that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Hegel got the idea from him. He couldn't say it because Hegel felt that uh, Prussian Protestantism was the culmination of human history. And here you have basically an Italian Catholic who came up with your idea. So you're going to have to disguise that, which is what Hegel did. Hegel, I, I don't think anybody could maintain that Hegel didn't know who Vico was. There were just too many people who had Goethe was one of them. He went down to he went down to um, Naples. And the first thing they do when a German distinguished German shows up is they give him a book of uh, Nuova Sienza. That's what happened. And Hegel had intimate con conversations with uh, Goethe. And so it was impossible. He didn't know this, but he disguised it. But to his credit, he did resurrect the idea that there was a thing called history and that history, the idea that history has a plan. Because it's a drama. It's a very complicated drama because it's a drama that's created in the mind of God. And so it takes a lot of real uh, serious study to figure out what's going on here. But it reintroduced the idea of meaning into history. And for that, we have to give him credit. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to move on here to another topic. Uh, a couple months ago, you debated Jared Taylor. Um, and I heard you describe, and maybe I'm misconstruing this slightly i heard you describe race as a a fiction but then you also said it's just because it's a fiction doesn't necessarily mean it's a complete construct could you elaborate more on that yeah it was i'm trying to make distinctions between categories of the mind and categories of reality now this goes back to thomas aquinas if, you, if thomas aquinas had a definition of truth which is basically it's adequatio rei et intellectum it's the correspondence between the mind and the thing that means that they are two separate things this automatically uh deals a blow to german idealism or the attempt to german of german idealism to reduce everything to spirit 
which was the reaction to Spinoza, who was a materialist who tried to reduce everything to matter. It turns out you have to have both. You can't have truth unless there's uh, both of them together. Okay. Okay. Uh, and that's that's precisely. I I lost my train of thought. What were we talking about? We were talking Jared about, Taylor. Okay, yeah. back to Jared Taylor. So I'm saying, of course, he comes in and he introduces, shows a picture of pygmies with some Englishman in a pith helmet. Obviously, they're different. They look different. Sure, they do. I'm not denying that. But so what? Did did do I have to maintain there's no difference between my nose? And an African nose? No, there is a difference. There are different things. Now, the question is, that's a category of reality. I'm not denying that. If you want to talk about DNA, that's a category of reality. That's what created my nose the way it is because I inherited it from my parents and so on and so forth. That's a category of reality. But again, we're back to the dialectic. That's the category of reality. What's the category of the mind? What's the meaning of that nose? Well, you're not going to find it in DNA because there's no meaning in DNA. But that's precisely the sleight of hand that the racist uh, gets involved in. And the main vehicle for that is IQ. So you look at people, uh, uh, black people in Chicago have a lower IQ on the average than white people. Well, this is, has a naive faith that uh, I, these tests are accurate, which I contest. But even if they are accurate, you're leaving out environment. Is there some difference between the environment in South Chicago and the environment in North Chicago? Yeah, there's a big difference, a big difference. And the point here is that uh, if you eliminate environmental factors, uh, the whole intelligence thing just disappears. And by that, I mean, if you get a black child and uh, a German couple adopt the black child, that child will be raised as a German, thinking that he's a German with German habits in terms of uh, work and so on and so forth. And that simply completely negates the bad effects that the South side of Chicago have on all of the black people that are there. And it refutes the whole issue of biological determinism. Now, I wanted to ask you about uh, Jews and Judaism. I recently finished reading this book, um, The Neoconservative Revolution, written by Murray Friedman. Right. And uh, in the book, this author, he points out how many Jews were influential in creating the neoconservative movement and libertarian movement. I was curious if you would agree with this and uh, in what way do they play a role in kind of pushing this ideology? Yes, that's an important book. Murray Friedman was the head of the AJC, the American Jewish Committee in Philadelphia, where I grew up. Uh, he is an influential figure, and he also wrote a very influential book on uh, an important book on the Black Jewish Alliance uh, and why it why it collapsed. So he's an honest uh, an honest uh, Jew who's trying to explain honestly with a, a certain amount of ethnic pride uh, the fact that neoconservatism was a Jewish movement. I completely agree with that. The trouble is when I say it's a Jewish movement, people call me an anti-Semite. Uh, we have to break this taboo. It, it, it is crippling discourse. And the taboo I'm talking about is Murray Friedman says neoconservatives is a Jewish movement and we're all supposed to stand up and applaud. If E. Michael Jones says it's a Jewish movement and I think it had a catastrophic effect on American foreign policy in Iraq, well, then I'm an anti-Semite. This is ridiculous. We have to dispense with this. Have to get rid of it. Right. And there's like it's a double standard. So if a, if a Jewish person is uh, talking about the Jewish involvement in neoconservatism, it's seen as a positive thing. But if someone like me or you points it out, then we're called 
anti-Semitic. Um, for those in the audience unfamiliar with the concept of the Jewish revolutionary spirit, could you give us an overview of this and especially how it relates to the Jewish rejection of Christ? Yes. So uh, as um, so to get back to Murray Friedman and the neoconservative revolution, it's 2003 and I'm. I can't believe my eyes that there is a cabal of people in the White House who are dragging the United States into a war in Iraq that has no benefit whatsoever for the people of the United States and is clearly geared toward uh, somehow protecting Israel. A complete coup d'etat that took over the government under the idiot George Bush and was run by Dick Cheney, who was not a Jew, but was obviously a leader in the neoconservative movement. Okay, so first principle, you don't have to be a Jew to be uh, have the Jewish revolutionary spirit. So we're back to Jared Taylor. It's not DNA. Anti-Semitism was created as a term of biological determinism by Wilhelm Marr in the 1870s in Germany, who was a revolutionary, didn't want to use theological language uh, to describe Jewish behavior, wanted to use biological language, and it didn't work. Led to Hitler, but it didn't work. Okay, I did the exact opposite. I reverse engineered this, and I said, we have to go back to the theological language, the theological critique, understanding of Jews, because it's the only thing that makes sense. And to do that, you have to go back to the crisis uh, in uh, human history, uh, the crisis among the Jewish people, which is when the Messiah shows up on this earth and the Jewish people have to either accept him or reject him. The Messiah is uh, the Logos incarnate. He is the Logos. We learned that from St. John. Uh, so uh, if, the, if, they, if the Jew rejects uh, Jesus Christ, he's rejecting the Logos. If you're rejecting the Logos, you're rejecting the order of the universe. And if you reject the order of the universe in a programmatic way, you're a revolutionary. And that's precisely what the Jews became at this point when they rejected Jesus Christ. And that's their identity to this day. Nothing has changed since they said his blood be on us and on our people. Within uh, 30 some years of Jesus Christ's crucifixion, uh, the, Jew, the Jews rose up in rebellion. The revolutionaries took over and uh, they took back the city and drove the Romans out. And then suddenly the Romans gathered power and they came back and destroyed the temple. At that point, the Jews had no sacrifice, no priesthood and no uh, temple. And as a result, uh, they had no way of expiating sin. And as a result of that, they've been trying to expiate sin their way for two millennia now. And the main way they expiate sin is blaming you for their behavior. That's Jewish practice. That's the situation right now. Right. And you could see um, the, one of the earliest manifestation of this Jewish spirit in books such as the Talmud, which is post-Christ, right? Hundreds of centuries after the Gospels were written, we have the Talmud. First, the uh, Babylonian Talmud and then the Palestinian Talmud. And uh, my question for you is, when did people start labeling you an anti-Semite? The minute I started talking about Jews. Uh, the, the, uh, what what do they what do we mean? This came out actually a, a little bit before the publication of the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit 
which was 2009. The first edition came out in 2009 uh, because I had published articles in Culture Wars. And the Jews have uh, are good at spying on you. So they have intelligence agencies. One's the ADL. The other one's the SPLC. And the SPLC did an article uh, attacking me. And about 12 other guys got dragged into this simply because they needed more than one person. Uh, and they called me called me an anti-Semite for what? For for writing this book about the history of the Jews, most of which a lot of which came from Heinrich Graetz's history of the Jews. What what they mean when they say anti-Semite is someone who criticizes Jews. I, I will admit that I criticize Jews. If we could simply reduce the conversation to that, we could cut to the chase and say this is what anti-Semitism means. It would clarify the situation considerably. But the Jews are never going to admit that. They were never going to admit that because they lose the magic power of the term anti-Semitism. And if they did were to say this, then they'd have to tell you, well, why is it wrong to criticize Jews? Why is this group above any form of criticism? Is it a sin to criticize Jews? Jesus Christ criticized Jews. He said, your father is Satan. That was really, you know, awful thing to say. He'd qualify the SPLC would call him an anti-Semite today uh, if he had done that today. Uh, so that's the bind that they're in. If they get specific, then suddenly we have to we have to say at this point, we have to simply take the term away from them. And we have to say, look, anti-Semitism is just a way of shutting down the conversation. It has no meaning other than Jews, something Jews don't like. Uh, you're going to have to explain to me why Jews are above criticism. I mean, when they kill, when the Israelis kill Palestinians, shoot innocent women and children in the back, why are they above criticism? If the Jews uh, uh, create pornography, abortion, and all these other things that they create in the United States, why can we not criticize them? Why is this? This is the question we have to ask because we're not going to be liberated from this Jewish hegemony that currently rules us unless we start standing up and saying we have a right to criticize your behavior. Right. And they tend to do this thing where they'll attack uh, Christians or Europeans. And then if you respond, uh, you're labeled an anti-Semite by default. I think uh, one of the latest manifestations of this and i think you talked about this as well was that uh sarah silverman and seth rogan christmas uh series yeah which, santa inc yeah it's just like and when there was a response to that of course it's they're going to be negative responses because you're attacking uh non-jews and obviously they get labeled anti-semite so there's no there's no um way for anyone to this defend themselves against them without being smeared right and their lives ruined yeah this is the polish proverb is the jew cries out in pain when he strikes you it's, it's classic the classic expression of jewish behavior it's the the projects they project onto you the very thing that they're doing so classic example is uh, mr borla who is the head of pfizer uh, who is now under attack because so many people are dropping dead because of his vaccine. And so what does he say? If you're against vaccination, you're a criminal. No, what you're really saying is that you're the criminal. 
You have imposed this this uh, bioweapon on people in the name of vaccine. People are dying because of what you're doing. And so you can't deal with it. You have to project it on to the people you don't like, the anti-vaxxers. That's classic Jewish behavior. Right. And I think there is a very high push to um, inculcate this this feeling that you can't criticize Jews and, and children. Um, for example, like. I'm from the East Coast where there's a high Jewish population. And I remember going to school, you know, every year they were always, you know, anti-Semitism was always a thing being talked about, you know. Oh, was this a Catholic school? Uh, no, no, no. It was a public school. But yeah, there, well, was, there, was, there was a lot of Catholics in there. Right. There, Catholic schools are no different. They're probably even worse, probably even worse than public schools. So you're right. You're right. What we have is massive, massive indoctrination. Uh, and the main thing you learn is you are not allowed to criticize a Jew. Jews are above criticism. Anything they do is justified because they're eternal victims. And the main vehicle for this is uh, a book like Ailey Wiesel's White, uh, Night. If you go, if you go to Catholic school, you cannot get out of that Catholic high school unless you've read Night at least once. I have grandchildren who have read it two and three times going through a Catholic high school. This is an outrageous violation of the autonomy of Catholic education, and it's simply uh, an indication of how the Jews have taken over the Catholic mind. I'm writing a book about that now, okay? So we can talk about that later. But it's it's, it's a, simple, a simple fact, okay? Right, and I think we would both agree here that uh – Jews are behind a lot of today's, which we mentioned previously in the beginning of this interview, uh, manifestations of slavery, whether it be economic, such as usury, or whether it be uh, psychological, such as the propagation of pornography. Uh, also, even by labeling white people by default as racist, simply for right. being white. The Jews are the creators of critical race theory. The, the main creator was Noel Ignatieff a Jew who was a professor at Harvard. Jews have taken over Harvard. It's now a Jewish, Jewish university. So critical race theory, as, again, I brought this out in my debate with uh, Jared Taylor. Uh, what is critical race theory? It's basically Jews weaponizing the black and white issue, uh, pretending that they're not white after they spent years pretending that they were white. This is why I'm saying white is simply a category of the mind. Okay, It is not intrinsic to any single person. You can be as you, you can. And the main exploiters of this are the Jews and the main man who uh, is used as the uh, the enabler for Jewish uh, subversion is Jared Taylor, because Jared Taylor's job is to persuade you that Jews are white, even though Noel Ignatieff is saying the exact opposite. This is the dishonest game that's going on here. Yeah, well, wasn't there a uh, video of a Jewish guy at some I don't know, maybe it was a Black Lives Matter rally, but they were going to assault him. And he said, no, no, I'm not white. I'm Jewish. Right. <laughs> That's right. So it's, it's kind of like a convenient switch that they can. Uh, it's 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 Yeah, because uh, white is a complete category of the mind that you can put on and take off like a hat. And that they, they are masters of this type of deception. They use it when it's convenient for them and then they abandon it when it's not convenient. Um, yeah, so in regards to um, if, if you were to call out a Jew and uh, say that, look, you are behind a lot of the uh, 
manifestations of slavery today, they would get very um, aggressive and repulsive. And not all of them. I mean, for instance, a while ago, you did an interview with um, Michael Witkoff, or otherwise known as Brother Augustine, who was formerly a Jew who converted. And he, I think he even um, explained how that they get very aggressive when you try to rationally or reasonably politely explain to them that they're behind this. What do you think causes this aggression? Is it just simply like the human desire to not want to be in the wrong or is there more to it? Yes. No, you, we, we really cannot under or cannot uh, overestimate the role that guilt plays in Jewish behavior. And as I said, it goes back all the way to the, to the temple. Uh, The Jews have no way to expiate guilt. They have no sacrifice. That was the whole point of temple sacrifice. It was to expiate guilt. They can't do that anymore. And so they have to find out ways to deal with guilt. And the main way they deal with guilt is projection. They project it on you. It's your problem, you know. Mm -hmm. And if you bring it up, uh, the only reason you brought up the fact that, let's say, Jews are behind gay marriage, uh, which they brag about, uh, is the fact that you're an anti-Semite. It's your problem. It's this constant reversal of, of roles, constant projection uh, back onto you. That's the way they deal with it. The guilt is the main driving force w- in Jewish behavior. Right. And where do you see uh, world Jewry going? Do you think this phenomenon will, over a long period of time, disappear? Or will it no. be a... No. No. Okay. No. The Jewish history is always... The Jew always overplays his hand. Uh, and that's the, that's the problem. And they, why do they do that? Because they, they are in rebellion against Logos and Logos means limit. It means I am what I am. I am not that I can't, I am not God. I can act as if I am God. Uh, all, all this type of thing. Logos always puts limits on what is, uh, doable, what is achievable and what, what your place in the universe is. Well, the Jews reject that. So they have no limits. And because they have no limits, they always uh, make a virtue out of overplaying their hands. They have a word for it. It's called chutzpah, 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 which means affrontery or something like that. But basically, chutzpah means the Jew takes delight in uh, basically uh, transgressing the boundaries that the goyim have set for him and then getting the goyim to go along with his own transgression, with his own degradation. That's called chutzpah. And at a certain point, the goy wakes up and he's angry and there's a reaction. So that's the way I see it going. I don't, it's, it's tragic. This is the tragic part of human history, but uh, they, they get kicked out of a country. And then as soon as they get kicked out because their usury has made everyone miserable, they immediately say, Oh, it was anti-Semitism. Uh, the main cause of anti-Semitism, what they are calling it, is Jewish behavior, and they simply can never admit that. Right. I mean, if you get kicked out of so many countries, it's it, it never dawns upon you that maybe you're doing something wrong. Um, I wanted to go back to talking about uh, neoconservatism and uh, the role Jews play in that. Now, uh, in the book that I mentioned before, uh, it spoke about how a lot of Jews – Formerly uh, pro-communist Jews turned to uh, neoconservatism, or you could even say created um, neoconservatism as a means of combating communism. Um, what, in your opinion, if you agree with that assessment that they did uh, in mass 
switch from co- uh, a communist ideology to a sort of libertarian neoconservatism. Um, what do you think caused that? Um, a, a number of factors. Uh, the classic example is is Irving Kristol, um, who was a Trotskyite during the 1930s when he was a student at the City College of New York. Uh, then he became the leading neoconservative. The whole that was basically the battle over getting Jews out of the Soviet Union. They turned on the Soviet Union because uh, the Soviet Union turned on the Jews. Um, Stalin uh, did not like Jews. Uh, and the whole uh, every successful revolution leads to a civil war. So the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 led to a civil war between Stalin and Trotsky. Stalin wanted a kind of nationalist revolution. Trotsky wanted internationalism. Uh, and uh, basically, uh, in the 30s, Stalin decided to turn on his Jews. Uh, put on the show trial and had people like Zinoviev and Radek kind of debase themselves and confessing their sins, and then he executed them. And Trotsky went into exile. Well, that was where Irving Kristol came from. He was a supporter of Trotsky, and so his hatred of the Soviet Union under Stalin had this ethnic animus behind it, and finally he found that he could get more leverage if he became part of the anti-communist crusade. Uh, There was an element of opportunism here, uh, and that's precisely what happened after World War II. He became uh, the Congress for Cultural Freedom. Uh, CIA was uh, started these front operations, and he became the head of one. He became the editor of this uh, magazine, a CIA front magazine, and uh, then worked to uh, basically overthrow the, the Soviet Union. Uh, but it was still revolution. I mean, still believed uh, neoconservatism never got over its Trotskyite roots. Trotsky was the head of the army. So people like the neoconservatives commandeered the army and they sent it into Iraq. They wanted to send it into Iran. They took over our military. It was still the same revolutionary principles. It's just the name changed. That was right. the only difference. Yeah, it seems like both the Trotskyites and the neoconservatives have this uh, globalist disposition, this this will to expand. Uh, and I wonder if that whole Jewish idea of, uh, what is it called, Tikkun Olam, I believe, right. I wonder if that has something to do with it. Sure. Tikkun Olam means healing the world. It basically becomes an excuse uh, the, the Jew can wreck your culture and you're supposed to be grateful to him because he invokes Tikkun Olam, which is healing the culture. The magazine, uh, when Amy Dean uh, announced that Jews were behind gay marriage, it was published. The article was published in Tikkun magazine, Tikkun Olam. She clearly saw gay marriage as a way of healing the world. Well, thanks, uh, Amy, but no thanks. Who gave you the right to, to destroy our culture? Well, Tikkun Olam, you invoke Tikkun Olam because every Jew has a right to destroy anybody's culture because he's privileged. And he has that kind of never got over the idea that he was God's chosen people, uh, even when it comes to destroying every form of logos in your culture. Yeah, they like to kind of put down any other ethnic group of people who uh, take pride in their culture. They see it as dangerous or selfish and uh you know, who's what's that famous video? A Barbara Specter. You know, she's a perfect example of this, I I would say, where she's talking about how uh, Jews are going to be behind 
the influx of immigration and changing Europe. They right. have like this kind of pride. Right. And we're supposed to be we're supposed to go over and kiss Barbara Spector's hand because she's wrecking your our culture, our European culture. This is chutzpah. This is exactly what I told you. You're going too far. You don't understand the precarious nature of your situation. That is the tragedy of Jewish life, Jewish history. Yeah, and um, going back to the the Russian uh, thing, I, I think I heard you mention before that there seems to be this kind of uh, animosity or antagonism between Jews and Russia, and that was also manifested in uh, the neoconservative kind yeah. of ideology. Could you go into that a little bit more? Yes. Well, uh, so what, what we have to go back to the 19th century, uh, the the partition of Poland now has uh, the majority of the world's Jewish population used to live on the eastern border of Poland. Uh, but now it got partitioned and absorbed into Russia, a uh, part of it. And now the majority of the Jewish population is on the western border of Russia. Now, the western border is significant because it's access to all of the intellectual ferment that's going on in the uh, in Europe in the 19th century, including all of this revolutionary agitation. And so all of these ideas start percolating through the pale of the, the settlement. And as a result, uh, terrorist groups start to form like uh, Narodnaya Volia, uh, the national will. And the Jews get involved in trying to basically uh, revolutionize Russia. It doesn't work. Jew shows up in a village. The Russians immediately call the cops and say the guy's trying to overthrow the government. So they switched from education to terrorism. The Jew was the first uh, Sundalevich, the Jewish revolutionary, first man to bring dynamite into Russia. And what did he do with it? He tried to blow up the railroad tracks that the Tsar's train was uh, traveling on. And eventually they succeeded in killing the czar in 1880, and that led to a reaction, and that reaction drove Jews out of uh, Russia and drove them over here. That's That was the beginning of this, where this revolutionary ferment came. There was conflict there. There were the Jews who were communists uh, at the shtetl, and there were Jews who were nationalists. They became Zionists. And so you had constantly this back and forth between Jewish nationalism and Jewish internationalism as the inner dynamic in Jewish life. Sometimes, like in the 30s, most Jews are communists. By the 70s, a large percentage of these Jews became Zionists and supported Israel, largely because of their disappointment with the, the outcome of the civil rights movement, the Black Jewish Alliance, which Murray Friedman talks about in that other book that I mentioned. Right. Um, what was I going to say here? Oh. So in regards to the Jewish uh, ethnos, um, do you – so, okay, there are various different groups of Jews, like Ashkenazi Jews, Sephardic Jews. Um, do you think that these were all – they were all related at one point? Like how do you think those came to be? I'm curious because there seems to be a lot of debate about this. No. I mean if you're talking about some type of biological link – back to Moses doesn't exist. There is no, but there is no, the Ashkenazi are first of all, not Semites. They're a Turkic people who basically converted to Judaism. They lived on the Northern bank of the, uh, of the black sea in cities like Odessa. Uh, and they converted to uh, Judaism. in I think the eighth century after Christ, 
So there's no there's no common denominator here other than the fact that they call themselves Jews. And, and uh, the Ashkenazi are the dominant part. The Sephardic Jews, Sephirot is the Jewish word for Spain, and they were the Jews that lived in Spain, and they went their way. A lot of them, after they got expelled from Spain, a number of them went to Turkey, uh, and a number of them went to uh, Amsterdam. And in Turkey, they ended up, they still preserved this revolutionary identity and ended up being the driving force between, behind the young Turks and who basically overthrew the Ottoman Empire during World War One, around World War One, and slightly after World War One. Ataturk was a what they called the Donmad, which is the Turkish word for converso. And uh, so my last question here for you is: um, obviously, uh, economically speaking, usury, other forms of uh, exploitation in, in the current uh, mercantile economy. That we have is an issue and for what do you think the ideal economic system would be would it be some form of catholic distributism or no i don't i'm not a fan of distributism it was created by uh belloc and chester and they didn't have the depth that the, the you need to be a, a serious economist they were journalists uh my uh, my book uh barren metal a history of the conflict between labor and usury is based on the writing of heinrich pesch the Jesuit who uh, wrote his Lehrbuch der Nationalökonomie uh, in the 1920s. German economics has a depth to it that simply is missing from English economics. The problem is if you're an American and you learn economics, it's all English because uh, Germans are bad people. This is the lesson we learned from World War One and World War Two. Their books were destroyed, deliberately destroyed by the American occupation forces. And so it was suppressed. And the only reason I know about it is because uh, Rupert Edder, the late Rupert Edder, was a professor of economics at SUNY uh, Buffalo. And he, uh, German-American, and he basically scrounged up a copy, a complete copy of the Lehrbuch uh, after World War II and translated it into English. That book uh, is will cost you $1,300, uh, unfortunately. Uh, it was way priced, priced probably to keep it out of the market. Uh, and so I wrote Baron Metal as my way of uh, introducing uh, an English-speaking audience to German Catholic economics. That's what this that's what this book is about. I think that these are the soundest principles. They're philosophical principles. It's not pseudo-physics like English economics. It is sound philosophical principles that can provide the basis for a sound economy. Well, okay. Uh, thank you, Dr. E. Michael Jones, for joining me today. Um, you're always welcome to come back on. And uh, if there's any last words you want to say, go ahead. Yeah, thank you for having me on. All of the books I mentioned uh, today are available at uh, fidelitypress.org. Uh, uh, they're available. Uh, and the new book on art, The Dangers of Beauty, will be coming out sometime in early 2022. Okay, thank you.